Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Hi-Hat Film Podcast with myself, Michael Clancy. And it's me, Nick Murray. How are you doing, Nick? I'm great. I'm loving that new music. It's jaunty. It's got me feeling chipper. Isn't it good? It's a good fun. Yeah. Aye. Uh, it makes me want to, like, I don't know, go riding a penny farthing down a cobble street or something. Oh, that's how I got here today, so I'm, Did it? I'm two for two. Oh, man, I'm jealous of you. Yeah, so, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's myself and Nick, and we sit down, and we're going to have a darn good chinwag about films. As always, we've got our weekly themed top five, and this week, it's uh, it's a good one, Nick, I'd say. It is, yeah. It's films with food in the title. Yeah, I like that. I like it too. I can see you've got a, a, a glint in your eyes <laughs> if you've... Uh, You've been playing fast and loose with the rules, you no, maverick we'll, you. We'll see, I mean, usually it's you that gets away with, uh, with a bit of cheekiness in our top fives, but we'll uh, we'll see if I can raise the bar today, man. Yep, and then, uh, of course, we do have the Hi-Hat DVD Club, in which we pick a DVD recommended by one of our loyal Hi-Hatters on Facebook, and we do a review of that. This week we are reviewing The Monster Squad, Nick. Yeah, The Monster Squad, um... Suggested by Richard Pearson week after week. Yeah. And we finally succumbed, succumbed. I can't wait to talk about this film. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting piece. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we'll also be doing a review of our films of the week. But first of all, we have our talking point. The Hi-Hat Film Review with Nick Murray and Michael Clancy. And so, for this week's talking point, usually we pick a subject that we can just have a, a bit of a debate about. This uh, this week's subject's a bit more of a serious matter. The world of uh, acting and uh, cinema was rocked by the uh, untimely passing of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who passed away on the 2nd of February due to a, a drug overdose. And, um, you know, we are a, a podcast that like to have a bit of fun, and we kind of poke fun at films as well as, you know, try and cast an analytical eye over things but for this one you know we felt because Nick, Nick you and I were both genuinely big were big fans uh, sure. still are of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and you know I don't think we're going to get into the habit of necessarily doing a tribute to every actor that, that passes away but because you know there's the risk that you can come off as sort of jumping on the bandwagon and seeming insincere but yeah. I, I think with uh, an actor like Philip Seymour Hoffman we're both really big fans so I think we just wanted to spend a bit of time on the show honouring the man and you know we don't, certainly don't want to look, dwell too much on the circumstances be behind his passing and more celebrate what was an undeniably brilliant career. Absolutely Michael so <clears throat> I think I first became um, aware of his work when I saw Boogie Nights which to my day is, is still one of my, my favourite films and he was in a, a kind of supporting role as Scotty in that film and, and it's a couple of scenes where he really uh, shines and I, I was taken by this actor in this film because he was not um, a Hollywood hunk, mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't um, very um, charismatic in that way, the character was very introverted and was handled um, very well by Hoffman and it got me interested in him and I followed some of his other work and uh, he comes across as a very versatile actor, Yeah, able to lend himself to very different parts across his career and he's been able to shine um, as a leading character and uh, and stealing scenes as a, as a supporting actor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with uh, just about all of that. I mean, you just need to pull up his page on the IMDb and see the film he starred in and, you know, it ranges from big-budget blockbusters like um, Mission Impossible 3 mm -hmm. and The Hunger Games but also doing a lot of uh, smaller art house projects such as things like Boogie Nights, but then also yeah. films like Happiness and Mary and Max. And, yeah, 
I would agree with you in terms of the Boogie Nights thing. You know, he's obviously very capable in a leading man position, uh, in a leading man role, despite not being blessed with your typical movie star good looks. But as part of an ensemble, he he always drew the eye mm. to him, I think. Like, he, you know, he could be given a really small part in a film, in like a big ensemble piece, in a multi-strand narrative kind of film. Mm-hmm. But he always made sure that, like, he was this unmissable presence. If you look at roles in things like Magnolia, and Boogie Nights, and Happiness, in uh, The Big Lebowski, even, yeah. you know, these are... You know, varying degrees of uh, of the size of the roles and the impact in that film, and they're understated roles in large casts and it, characters that could have easily been lost in the shuffle. I think, in mm-hmm. terms of the the grand scheme of the of the films, and yet he made made you notice him. Yeah, and I think Scotty from Boogie Nights is a great example of that, and also his role in Magnolia. Yeah, and Ides of March as well. He's fantastic as the the kind of opposite of uh, Paul. Uh, Giamatti's mm. character on the other side of the political trail mm-hmm. and um, yeah have you seen that film Doubt with Helen Mirren the, the I haven't Catholic, seen that one uh, yeah no certainly in the past few days I'm sort of going back and, and filling in the, the blanks on some of my knowledge of some of his stuff but you know just looking at some of his other career he got a start in television he's also an acclaimed theatre actor he received several Tony nominations so mm. You know, star of the big screen, the small screen, and the stage. Yeah, very much an actor's actor as well, beloved by uh, people inside the business, and as you mentioned, treading the boards of Broadway, of course, mm-hmm. and stuff such as Death as a Salesman, most recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just a really sad loss taken in his prime. Uh, but, you know, looking at people who have died in it recently in Hollywood, look at someone like Heath Ledger, who perhaps didn't get a chance to really live up to his promise. Mm-hmm. At least you can say with Philip Seymour Hoffman that he did have a, a, a very accomplished career. And it's, it's just a shame that he couldn't continue to, to bless the world with uh, with his talents. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's I was amazed to learn that he was only 46 years old, because yeah. it feels like he's been around for so much more, but he's also taken up... You know, if you look back to roles in, like, Magnolia, Boogie Nights, you know, obviously he must have been in his late 20s then, to think of yeah. him, you know, about our age at that point, and pulling off these very mature, mm. accomplished um, performances is really impressive. The career speaks for itself. 2005, he was awarded the Best Actor Oscar Award for his role in Capote, mm-hmm. as Truman Capote, and I don't think that's a great film by any stretch, but it it's certainly a, a great performance and mm. a worthy award for him to win, and that's, you know, one of... One of those examples of uh, where an acting performance kind of overpowers the film, and he yeah. was an actor who was capable of giving those performances. And I, I think, you know, for me, perhaps his last great role was uh, as Lancaster Dodd in The Master. I don't yeah. know if, you, Fantastic, if yeah. you caught that one, where he's. And you mentioned such a versatile actor in that film alone. He's charming, charismatic, commanding, yet he's also flawed and vulnerable. And, you know, you sort of see the whole wealth of, of his uh, acting ability. In yeah. He comes across to me as an actor who's. You know, he's polished his craft, and that is what he wants to be known for. You know, you see him sometimes looking dishevelled. You know, he's got his gut hanging out, unshaven. He was never too fussed about the glitz and glamour mm-hmm. side of Hollywood. He was all about letting his work speak for him, and um, mm-hmm. I think that is how he will be remembered, Michael. I think so. You know, he'll always he's immortalised in my mind just by being in my favourite film of all time, and Which one's in that? The Big Lebowski, he oh, plays yeah. um, The Big Lebowski's snivelling sycophantic assistant brand yeah. and again not a huge role but a really important part of the movie i mean mm. it's just one of 
the many pieces that makes that film such a gem is his little ever grinning, ever kind of like chuckling, little bootlicking assistant. Yeah. Yeah. Still in the scene and, and then, you know, to, to do some voice work on um, mm-hmm. on Mary and Max. Or Max is it Max and Mary? It's, it's Mary and Max. Mary and Max, yeah. that's what I thought. Like uh, you gave me that film for the D V D club and thoroughly enjoyed it and I I would never have known had I, had I not seen the, the D V D box that it was Philip Seymour Hoffman mm-hmm. doing the voice, you know. So yeah, uh, versatility. Yeah, and, and voice work is not really something that an actor will always gain an awful lot of like plaudits for. Sure. But, you know, it was a small small film, and I, I just thought he, he brought such pathos to that character of Max, mm. who's this overweight, uh, shut-in with mental health issues, who likes to eat chocolate sandwiches and things like <laughs> that. And it's just, I mean, there's a million reasons why Mary and Max is a, a beautifully wonderful film. Yeah. But uh, certainly he... he played a, a significant part in that also yeah yeah well i think i think it, that's a fair little retrospect we'll we'll play a little a little uh tribute package to him just now and we'll just leave it with a respectful tip of our high hats to to the legend that was philip seymour hoffman indeed rest in peace sir going to be a true journalist, you know, a rock journalist, you first never get paid much, but you will get free records from the record company. <laughs> Fucking nothing about you that is controversial, man. God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. You're going to meet girls. They're going to try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs. And I know it sounds great. These people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars. And they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, and you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real. Right? And then it just becomes an industry of cool. This is a study. As you can see, the various commendations, awards, citations, honorary degrees, etc. Very impressive. Oh, please feel free to inspect them. Oh, no, I'm not uh, really... uh, Oh, please, please. That is the key to the city of Pasadena, which Mr. Lebowski received two years ago in recognition of his various civic... uh, Oh... That's the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce Business Achiever Award, which is given, well, not necessarily given every year, hey, given only when there's a uh, worthy is somebody. This, is this him with uh, Nancy? Yes, indeed, that is Mr. Lebowski with the First Lady, yes. Oh. Let's take him when Mrs. That's Ray- uh, Lebowski on the left there? Yeah, of course, Mr. Lebowski on the left. So he's a, uh, you know, a, a uh, handicapped uh, guy? Mr. Lebowski is disabled, yes. Uh, Dear Mary Daisy Dinkle, thank you for the letter, which I opened and read at 9.17 p.m. after my Overeaters Anonymous class. I am trying to lose weight because my psychiatrist, Dr. Bernard Hasselhoff, says a healthy body equals a healthy mind. Ooh. He says my mind is not that healthy.
I know it was difficult for you to come in here hat in hand. That's not the kind of upbringing, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's not the kind of man you are. I understand that. I'm not looking to humiliate you or exact a price in any way, so why don't you just apologize? We'll call it water under the dam and we'll go about our business. Excuse me, what the fuck? What? What the fuck are you talking about? Claire George said you were coming in here to apologize. No, I'm supposed to come in here so you could apologize to me. According to whom? Claire George. You told me to go fuck myself. I'm supposed to apologize to you? Also, water goes over a dam and under a bridge, you poncy schoolboy. Clearly, there's been a miscommunication between Claire George and somebody. Tell me to go fuck myself and I'm supposed to apologize? Yeah. You break my window, I'm supposed the to apologize? The Helsinki job was mine. The Helsinki job was not yours. If it was yours, you'd be in Helsinki. Alan Wolf stood in the office. Alan Wolf is no longer yeah, the it was on the Alan books. Wolf is no longer the director of European operations. He does not make those appointments I do. Promises were made. Not by me. I've been with the company for 24 years. I was posted in Greece for 15. Papandreou wins that election if I don't help the junta take him prisoner. I've advised and armed the Hellenic army. I've neutralized champions of communism. I've spent the past three years learning Finnish, which should come in handy here in Virginia, and I'm never ever sick at sea. So I want to know why I'm not going to be your Helsinki station chief. There's not a word or a sentence or a concept that you can illuminate for me. There is one singular reason I keep coming here. True. November 14th, 1959. Three years ago. Three years. Hmm? That, that's all I want to hear from you. This is absurd. Do you know what absurd means? I'm ready. I have a plane to catch. You've wandered from the proper path, haven't you? These problems you have? <laughs> I don't have any problems. I don't know what I told you, but if you have work for me to do, I can do it. You seem so familiar to me. What do you do? I do many, many things. I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man. Hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. Okay, dog. So moving on to our films of the week. Do you want to get the ball rolling on this, Nick? I'd love to, mm -hmm. Michael. My uh, film of the week is uh, directed by a Frenchman known as uh, Frank Kaufman, mm -hmm. and it is Maniac from 2012. Jolly good. Now this film is a brutal slasher remake of the 1980 cult film of the same name. Now for me. I liked Lord of the Rings, but I did think that um, Frodo could have done with a bit more edge. Yeah. And uh, in this film we see Elijah Woods star as Frank Zito, an introverted young man who is damaged by the recent death of his mother, who was a mannequin restorer, oh, who also, also um, moonlighted as a prostitute, oh. as you do, um, and he finds it difficult to develop relationships with women. and. Uh, 
ends up brutally killing them and scalping them and um, stapling their bloody hairy scalps to his collection of mannequins back at the family store. Mm-hmm. So, not your uh, usual Elijah Woods kind of film, you no. know. He's, he's not really known for this, the darkness, but uh, it's a real interesting piece, my guy. I would dare say, is he channeling a bit of his, um, I can't remember the name of the character, but his role in, in Sin, City. Sin City, yeah. Possibly, yeah. It's, it's even more unsettling than that. Really? Oh I'd boy. Say. The, the real grit of this film comes from the innovative point of view filming that it takes on. Now this is the really unique thing about this and um, where everything is seen from Frank's point of view with uh, internal monologues, dream sequences and uh, only fleeting mirror shots helping to develop this uh, dark and troubled character. So we really don't see Elijah Woods in it that much apart from uh, these, these fleeting shots as I mentioned. Mm. Um, as you can imagine, this was um, very difficult to achieve with Woods working um, a very different style of acting, um, almost like a voice acting job, but um, working very closely with the director of photography, Maxine Alexandra, on this film. And uh, as you can imagine, he's standing right behind the camera, so there's, there's scenes where Woods is um, washing his hands with steel wool, and one of the hands is his hands, and the other hand going around the camera and all the, the stuff they're using is a, a body double's hand. So he's washing his body double's hand like it's his own hand. And um, it all comes together very you know, very well. It's um, a very in- intense film, as you might imagine, from yes. this. And um, fans of cult slasher films uh, will recall the 1960 British thriller Peeping Tom yep. that followed yep. um, a similar premise with a serial killer using a portable camera to capture his victim's gruesome final moments. Yes. So, um, I don't know about you, but I don't find Elijah Woods as um, a, a very physical threat. His big eyes and, and schoolboy frame don't re- represent danger. And uh, so most of the development of the character is achieved through ADR, which is um, additional dialogue recording, Michael. Very, very good. For those in the business. Yes. And um, Spare us your techno, techno chat. <laughs> I know. So this is what we get. And um, because... It is through ADR. It doesn't. The, his voice and his thoughts are not in the scene. If you know what I mean. Yeah. It's almost like the viewer has been granted access to these intimate thoughts, and it's it's not like you've been welcomed into this arena with his mind. It's like you're trapped in it with him, and it's mm-hmm. very claustrophobic, and it, it is very unsettling. It really helps to develop the character. Um, yeah. It sounds like what you're describing is what I imagine the final series of Peep Show is going to be when Mark <laughs> finally snaps yeah. and, and kills, kills <laughs> Jeremy and Sophia and Superhands and yeah. everyone else. Well, that's what this film really builds to because at the start you, you, you don't really know where it's going and then you know Frank goes on, on this blind date and he meets this girl from the internet and they're all getting on great and then he just he can't handle it and you realise that he's a real, real damaged piece of work. wrong Absolutely. So it's very unsettling for the viewer, and if you um, didn't just see the, you don't just see these brutal murders. You're you're really part of them. You're in Frank's head with them, and uh, it's a very bold direction mm-hmm. for this film to take. And uh, you begin to feel trapped inside this character's head, and you, you know you can't control his actions. No. It's um, yeah, you feel really helpless, and um, you actually start to begin to, to feel a kind of empathy for the character, which is oh, wow. which is very. You know, that's even more unsettling. Yikes. So, um, from a horror fan's point of view, this is a psychological, shocking, gory, explicit film and has an exhilarating and haunting conclusion. Definitely 
Woods's most uh, interesting and more dark projects to date, and um, it's a grisly B movie throwback that really sticks with you, Michael. Well, like what? a scalp to a mannequin's head. What a fantastic account of the film you give. <laughs> Thanks very much, yeah. yeah. I've been waiting to talk about this one for a while. Yeah, no, that sounds good. I've been, it's been on my kind of watch list. I think it's on Netflix, so yeah. I'm going to have to give that a wee watch very it's, soon. It's, it's also got this, I know you're a man that likes his uh, scores to music music in the, in the movies. Mm. Uh, not to plug Careful. Your, not to plug Careful. your radio show too closely, but um, what, what we get in this is a very brooding, electronic, almost... Industrial '80s synthy score, a bit like Drive, oh, but um, sounds a like bit, your sort of thing. A bit heavier, so um, yeah, I was um, absolutely transported, Michael. Ah, very good. There you go. Excellent. I'm glad you were transported. Top that big guy. All right. Well, I've seen quite a few films uh, since our last recording. A lot of new releases. Uh, yesterday, I saw The Armstrong Lie, which was a documentary about Lance Armstrong. Oh, yeah. Before that, I saw Out the Furnace, which was a really decent piece with uh, Christian Bale, Woody yeah, Harrelson, King. Casey Affleck. And that, that was very good. Uh, August, Osage County, I really liked as well. Really mm-hmm. biting, nasty little screenplay there with a cracking cast. But I think for my film of the week, I'm going to settle for falling back into, you know, the arms of a comfortable favourite of mine, the Coen brothers. We're going with Inside Lewin Davis. A big cuddle from the Coens. A big cuddle from the Coens. And that's, and this is it. That is essentially what we've got here. You've got Oscar Isaac, who plays the titular musician, who's a tortured artist trying to scratch out a living in Greenwich Village, and and it kind of follows him for a week in his life as he gigs and auditions and basically looks for a couch to crash on. He's a bit of a waster in that respect. As well as that, he's dealing with complicated relationships with his fellow folk musician, played by Kerry Mulligan, uh, very reliably. So yeah, this is not the first time the Coens have looked into the life of a struggling artist. They've mm-hmm. done it in things like Barton Fink, uh, where you looked at a playwright struggling with writer's block. Um, and that film, to an extent, was about a man who went to work for the establishment and became a Hollywood scriptwriter, and the writer's block that came with that. Lewin Davis doesn't have those same problems. He is still you know very prolific in his output certainly and that that isn't really the problem of it for him i would say that kind of selling out is unbecoming for an artist of his talents he's a bit of a pretentious no hoper and it has a very uncompromising look on the world and it gets him into all manners of scrapes and and problems and it, you know he doesn't get to um forward his music particularly well uh, because of that and hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler Basically, it's the look at the self-destruction of a man whose uncompromising view of his art form means that he's just doomed to live in a cycle where he makes the same mistakes over and over and over again. So it's not exactly a light comedy from the Coens in the same way as maybe Big Lebowski or Brother Wouter or Intolerable Cruelty, but true to form, it is layered with this slick black humour that you've come to expect from the Coen brothers, and a lot of that comes through their their gift for screenwriting and through the wordplay of that but also through the highlighting of the absurdity of everyday life and Oscar Isaac's a very good actor for that because he's a very deadpan performer and he you know his line delivery and just like little Rai looks he he makes it definitely sells that very well so it's a fine performance from Isaacs he's got a great supporting cast Kerry Mulligan is as reliable as always Justin Timberlake puts in a surprisingly strong performance and I think it's not bad well I'm always wanted to think that when you cast a musician in the film you're kind of 
selling out a little bit and it's a bit of a marketing ploy but I'm with this performance from Timberlake I'm willing to say right he, he does have some acting credit he's cut his teeth a few yeah, interesting yeah things. fair enough and I've not seen him in a great deal but I was and he doesn't get a great deal of, of screen time in this but I would say he does a, a he does a, a very good job mm-hmm. John Goodman pops up as a man uh, as a jazz musician and he basically chews his dialogue for the entire time he's on screen and he gives a couple of gives a couple of digs towards Isaac in the folk music scene and he's very good and at the heart of it obviously is the music you know the Coen brothers when they when somebody performs you don't just get like a little bit of the song or you don't get like a montage where it's like intercut with other things going Mm. on when somebody performs they perform the whole song Mm. and, and and you sit and you're an audience member and you watch all of that and I think for some people they might find that a bit tiresome for me I I thought it was really nice to see these very talented people mm-hmm. playing their playing their craft like that. The you know, music was organised by T Bone Burnett, who's worked with the Coens many many times, and obviously it's it's excellent. You know, I, it perhaps won't go down as one of the Coen brothers' best, but I would say ultimately it is a fine addition to their canon. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's been an interesting month for for films, Michael. It's been mm-hmm. a lot out looking towards Oscar season, of course. Mm-hmm. So. Um, January's been a tip-top month for him. Yes, I'd say so. All right, jolly good. Top five. Top five. Top five. Top five. Top five. Yeah, well, you really gave me some food for thought there oh. with the Coen Brothers film, so let's keep the tasty treats flowing with our top five this week. All it's right. films with food in the title. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you're looking quite smug there. You're happy about your top five um, this week. Yeah, right? you know, sometimes we sit down and it's a bit of a struggle. I know you had a bit of a hard time with the multi-strand narrative last time. Let's say about that, the better, I think. I've right? had some rough ones with, I think, with 1985 I didn't really <coughs> enjoy. So, yeah. uh, no, this is a good one. I think we had a good, strong list. Um, and the discussion on Facebook led to many a, a food-related film pun yeah can't, can't get enough of them yeah I've got insatiable appetite for puns I actually uh, purged a little bit too much on the food related puns <laughs> did you yeah I'm feeling a bit sick I've got a food related pun eating disorder now oh no yeah. Oh, oh. yeah oh well trying to sort that out today then yeah you know what's good for that to set all your stomach it's a nice vine ripened tomato right. and that leads me on nicely to my number 5 attack you are the master of these links <laughs> of the segues it's the attack of the killer tomatoes from 1978 <laughs> The film opens with a chilling lament of Hitchcock's The Birds. In 1963, Alfred Hitchcock made a motion picture entitled The Birds, a film which depicted a savage attack upon human beings by a flock of winged creatures. People laughed. In the fall of 1975, seven million blackbirds invaded the town of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, resisting the best efforts of mankind to dislodge them. No one is laughing now. The scene opens in a kitchen, present day. A lone tomato rolls out of the sink's plug hole. It rolls out of the sink and onto the floor. A terrified woman screams. And this is it. 
This is the passion project of one John DeBello, who directed, produced, edited, scored, and co-wrote this big B-movie parody. It's Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Now, Michael, you might remember the cartoon of this. Uh, I do. That when you were a child. And, I do. Uh, you know, that was um, a farce. It was like um, Little Shop of Horrors. I got a kind of um, Saturday morning Fox Kids yeah. TV uh, remake. And, um, you know, for me, this film is a, is a lot more chilling than um, the obvious hilarity of, um, of Little Shop of Horrors. Now, we have these tomatoes bouncing around. They're all different sizes. We have, we have the small household tomatoes, let's call them. Mm-hmm. And they, I don't even know how they would kill you, but apparently they are. And then you've got these huge tomatoes rolling down the street, bouncing, crushing people, eating people. We have sounds awful. <clears throat> yeah, and this this um, De Bello, This is obviously his vision for for some unknown reason. These tomatoes have become animated and self-aware, mm-hmm. and uh, revolt against humankind, as so often these objects do when they become animated and self-aware. We've seen it in Terminator. We've seen it in uh, Little Shop. We don't need more examples. We, we don't, no. One example is fine. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, these tomatoes can, can strike anyway, anytime, whether it's a straight-up mugging and mauling, or in a swimming pool, uh, seen parading Jaws, we see, or um, unsuspectingly drinking one of them in a glass of blended tomato juice. Oh, dear. These uh, tomatoes will get you, and, um, yeah, they're nasty customers, basically. Right. I don't have much more to say about it. There's a helicopter crash in the film, which actually was a real crash. They were mm-hmm. filming a helicopter, and it was meant to land, and something happened, it ended up crashing. The pilot was okay, but they ended up just using it as well. And, uh, yeah, it's all good fun until, um, you know, we destroyed the um, tomatoes at the end, and then we found out there's, there's, a, there's the rise of the carrot men at the end. That sounds dreadful. So, you may think that this is a bit of a crap film, but I, I, I disagree. I have seen it, I couldn't possibly... It's absolutely comment. terrifying, and it's made my top five for that very, very reason. Jolly good. Yeah. Well, my number five is perhaps, you know, on a similar scale of wackiness. It's a 2009 film from Sony Pictures Animation. It is Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Yeah, see, this is a straight rip-off of Killer Tomatoes. Well, says you. Um, featuring a all-star voice cast of Bill Hader, Bruce Campbell, James Caan, Andy Samberg, Mr. T, and for making her first ever appearance in one of my top five films, Nick, Anna Faris. Love Anna Faris. Yes, Listen to the smell. So. You can actually hear me smiling, <laughs> can't you? So it's about up-and-coming scientist Flint Lockwood, who is voiced here by Bill Hader. Looking to make an impact on his hometown, Swallow Falls, he invents a machine that turns water into food, uh, which he catchingly calls the Flint Lockwood Diatonic Super Mutating Dynamic Food Replicator, or the FLDSMDFR, for short. (laughs) Nice, that was the first time, well done. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, And it makes him an overnight hero. Things, however, do take a turn for the worse when the machine malfunctions, and it rains a storm of giant foodstuffs around the world. So, it's a manic and zany premise. I believe it is based on a children's book. And, you know, for a, a film with such a bizarre outlook, it's refre- well, it's lucky that the animation and the voice work uh, completely match the manic and zany premise of the film. It's a wonderfully well-created film. The The town of Swallow Falls is uh, really, really well-realised. It's filled with all these interesting characters, which is really nice. And, you know, just seeing 
the different impacts the machine makes, it's it's all done very, very nicely. So when everything's going well, you know, you sort of see the town celebrating and when it rains ice cream, they all have a big snowball fight. And there's a scene <laughs> where Flint first learns how to even have a snowball fight and it just sort of follows him around throwing like snowballs at people. But it, it, it doesn't sound like it's very much, but uh-huh. it's done in such a way that's really, really fun. There's a scene set in a giant castle made out of jelly, which is really, really nice. Um, when the food's when the machine goes wrong, it sort of brings on this food apocalypse, and then you get this nice little twist on something like maybe Independence Day or mm-hmm. the day after tomorrow, where you see like Paris being covered in giant pancakes and <laughs> London being like I don't know pelted with olives or something like that. Yeah. So and that's all very very creative as well. And then you have like this big final set piece where the humans try and fight back on the machine, which is in the sky, and they sort of fly up and they invade kind of the mothership and there's these gummy bears that kind of jump onto the plane and start tearing it apart and that's really funny and then you have just the way the machine it defends itself it has like whole roasted chickens like attacking people and people (laughs) there's a like a a labyrinth corridor they have to go down but they've got like spikes of peanut butter brittle coming out the walls because one of the characters has a peanut butter allergy so that's like me i would hate that yeah exactly so it's just great creative fun and it is completely daft but it's also very very you know it's the sort of thing where it could have been just a sort of tedious adaptation Mm. lazily done to appeal to a kid's audience but it isn't it's it's just very a really great attention to detail that is very admirable yeah my girlfriend took her class her school class of little kitty Mm -hmm. to see it and they all loved it and looking forward to the the sequel which is Mm -hmm. out now i believe yeah yeah it's been out i haven't seen it but it's also the title of my schedule for Rainy Day Bill Murray DVD marathons. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, uh, I like it. Very good. <laughs> very good. Okay, well, thank you very much, Michael. That's, that sounds uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, my- <laughs> Could you be more dismissive? <laughs> ah, these are kids' films. I yeah. like something a bit more gritty, a bit more realistic, something like my number four, mm-hmm. Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. <laughs> is a food type kind of it's a food stuff uh, so this is from 1999 it was Guy Ritchie's directorial debut with the crazy Cockney crime caper mm-hmm. how's that for alliteration and caper you got a caper I got a caper it's a caper so well, yeah more food stuff even better yeah. four friends I mean it doesn't matter what their names are I think it's like so personal I mean they're essentially the same character here I know Jason Statham plays one of them mm-hmm. um, Turkish no, no, that's a different film. I know. <coughs> but that's another, also another food type. Mm-hmm. Turkish delight. And he is a delight. In person. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, uh, one of them takes on a huge debt to uh, crime, crime lord and porn magnate Hatchet Harry. Mm-hmm. You've been a naughty boy, Harry. Mm-hmm. Where's my money? It's the kind of thing you might say. Yeah. Uh, in order to repay Hatchet Harry, the gang plan to rob local marijuana selling gang and uh, of course the bumbling crooks botched the job. Now this could easily have been uh, in last week's top five for multi-strand narratives because we follow the different stories of different gangs to some amount, would you not say? Yeah, Michael? I think Snatch might be a better example, but yeah. you, could, you could make an argument for you it. Could, you could. Um, there's confusion, calamity and Cockney rhyming slang and some incredibly self-conscious, try-hard, cool montages. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, which I think, obviously, you managed to dial back by the time Snatch came around. Mm. Uh, but it's all in good humour. Yeah. This is um, England's answer to Tarantino's Jackie Brown. It's just not that good. No, it isn't on the same level as that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there you go. That's how you're leaving it. That's how It's not it. as good as this other thing. It's not as good as Jackie Brown. Okay. If there was a which food, is fair to say. If there was a foodstuff called Jackie Brown, we would be talking about Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown Sugar? Mm, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Jackie we'll, Hash Browns. We'll stick a pin in that. Yeah, no, I like that one. That's good. good. Yeah. All right, excellent. Well, moving on for me, my number four, uh, the 1971 film directed by Mel Stewart. It's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. No way. Not to be confused with the Tim Burton abomination of a few years ago. Yeah, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. This is the original version the, of the adaptation of the, the great Roald Dahl young children's novel, in which a uh, young boy, Charlie Bucket, who, he's a commoner, he's a pauper, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's not a, a kid of wealth by any means. He wins a much sought-after golden ticket, which allows him a guided tour of the mysterious Wonka Chocolate Factory, which is conveniently located in his hometown, <laughs> no, right, despite this being a worldwide competition. <laughs> um, from there, he encounters the mysterious owner of the factory, Willy Wonka, and goes on a tour with other ticket winners, and hilarity, calamity, mayhem ensues. Are they really winners, though, Michael? Are they really winners? Well... That is a good good question. For me, it's just a magical film. I think the songs are on point. You know, there there are a fair few musical numbers in there, and I, I for one, really enjoy that. The scene where Grandpa Joe gets out of bed and dances around. Oh, yeah. Even though, you know, you could make an argument that he's been lying in bed for the last however many years while his poor daughter works his fingers to the bone. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, what's that? Free ticket to a chocolate factory. Sprightly. Wow. He's dancing the bed so yeah. he's right off his butt. Exactly. Um, the, the factory is also absolutely magical. You've got, like, that, that chocolate room where they go into where just everything is made of some kind of sweetie. And mm. I just remember seeing that as a kid and being like, that is the coolest room in the world. And apparently the reactions from that scene were completely genuine because oh, really? it was the first time the young child actors had seen had seen the set so I think that's fantastic you've got the Oompa Loompas as well which are great because they're actual actors and they, their song is quite good and they're memorable and it's not some kind of CGI mess where mm. it's just one person and uh, what I really love is just how the cast are 100% committed you've got Gene Wilder who's just this kind of you know, he's a bit whimsical, he's a bit magical, but he's also a little bit on the nasty side. Yeah. The scene set in the tunnel when they're going down on the boat. Oh my god. Apparently he was so convincing in those scenes that the, the young actors got quite scared and they thought that he was actually starting to go mad from I the bet. tunnel. So, uh, that's yeah, that's crazy. how committed he was. But the kids are great as well. Charlie is not infuriating, which is a trap they could have fallen into. He's cute as a button. And... You know, it's a film that has gone on to influence popular culture pretty much to this day. You know, you've seen episodes of Family Guy and Futurama have based themselves off it. Mm -hmm. 30 Rock did a little parody of it with Kenneth playing uh, that Slugworth character, and he looks the spitting image of him. Oh, really? And of course, most famously, the uh, the opening song, The Candyman Can, it's uh, inspired the 2000 multi-selling album by Craig David, Born to Do It. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you would know being such a big fan. Yep. 
Oh, very good, Michael. Well, moving on. I'm just going to cleanse my palate with a glass of milk from 2008. Yes, son of a... Yes, Segway Master strikes mm-hmm. again. Sean Penn. Yes. Shawnee Penn, friend of the show. Mm-hmm. Good egg all round. Mm-hmm. Spoke about him at length in 21 grams last week. <laughs> you sure did. And at length is what we call Naomi Watts' nipples, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, you Sean... have seen this film, you do remember it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen this Very one. Good. So Shawnee Penn depicts the last eight years of the life of Harvey Milk the heroically tragic politician and gay rights activist. Mm. In 1977, Milk made history as the first openly gay person to be voted into public office and is a true hero of human rights. And um, this is a big responsibility for the filmmaker to take. Uh, It could quite easily have been one of these American daytime TV biopics Mm -hmm. with everyone kind of phoning it in. But with Sean Penn in the uh, title role and director Gus Van Sant, uh, this performance really elevates this biopic into something special as Penn gives a detailed portrayal of this charismatically unlikely hero. So we have um, support from James Franco uh, mm-hmm. as uh, his gay uh, lover, but everyone else is completely eclipsed by Sean Penn's powerhouse performance. And if you've not seen it, get to see it now. And um, yeah, vote milk. Right, jolly yeah. good. Let's just say it's a story about the power of the individual against hatred and bigotry, Michael. Alright, let's say that. That sounds great. Sounds sounds dead smart in that. Okay. Yeah, very good. Number three for me, 2005 film from the the director that brought you so many great Twilight films, David Slade. It is Hard Candy. Oh, I've done this one before. Have you? Yeah. Hard Candy, or as its working title was, Snip Snip. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So this is basically a uh, (laughs) two-hander. There's nothing funny about that. That's a a legitimate term. Okay. This is a two-hander starring Ellen Page and Patrick Wilson. Teenage girl, Haley meets up with an older man who is seemingly grooming her for an inappropriate relationship. When they return to his home, however, it becomes clear that Haley is the one who is in control. Mm. Alright Nick, so what I want you to do, if you can, is access your brain memory banks and forget Juno with mm-hmm. her borderline infuriating pseudo-intellectual nonsense. It's done. Forget Inception, where uh, Ellen Page walked around just like as a human basil exposition, because this is by far and away Ellen Page's best performance to date. Mm. The command she has in this film, she has such confidence, such self-assurance in what is a very, very challenging role. Uh, she's playing this 14-year-old girl who is sort of turning the tables on this this predator. What I, what I like about it is the, there is an ambiguity to the film. You never quite know who the characters are, and you yeah. never quite know all their motivations, and I quite like that. We were talking a bit about doubt earlier with mm-hmm. uh, Seymour Hoffman, and this film, um, the, the character that Patrick plays, the photographer that mm-hmm. is... You may or may not have um, desires on this young lady. We're never quite sure yeah. until just towards the end what his real motives are. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it plays out like a kind of modern day cat and mouse film. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you're quite right. It's, uh, it's definitely her best role to date. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad it's not called Snip Snip because that's just weird. Kind of belittles it. Yeah, but fans of um, live castration mm-hmm. will enjoy this film. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. It's a niche market. The Hi-Hat Film Review with Nick Murray and Michael Clancy.
Well, I'm hopping mad, Michael, as yeah. you can tell from the steam coming out of my ears, because this is my number two. Right. And I had a whole lovely thing written out that was going to set the scene, well, you can still and do you it. have poo-pooed all over it. Oh. I'm going to just re- hit the reset button here, so hi-hatters, forget everything you just heard from yep. that nonsense talker, and picture the scene. factory. Its gates shut for decades. The factory owner, an introverted eccentric, whose neurosis is the stuff of legend. A ticket, a golden ticket, that opens the gate to opportunity or some other hell. (laughs) Directed by Mel Stewart and starring Gene Wilder. This is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie Bucket is born into poverty, as you mentioned, in England. His grandparents share a bed and his parents are pathetic. <laughs> his dad's non-existent, is he not? I think he's still dead there. Yeah. All right. Is he? He's pathetic. Uh, anyway. Okay. That's how pathetic he is and unmemorable. Mm-hmm. Charlie's ticket out of poverty comes when mad candy magnate Willy Wonka opens his gates to five lucky children. <laughs> Built as a comedy musical, this film is terrifying. The children, excluding Charlie, are evil, self-centred and self-serving antagonists. And it's one of the few films I've seen where the children are really the antagonists. Mm. Mm, interesting mm. thoughts. Wonka lures them to their terrible fates. Oh, dear. Wonka lures them to their terrible fates by taking advantage of their naive weaknesses, picking off a gust of gloop, Violet, I can't even say her second Beauregard, name. Beauregard? Something like that. Veruca Salt and Mike TV, leaving only virginal Charlie surviving the tour of the fiendish multicoloured nightmare factory. <laughs> Rodal was not happy with the film and wanted Spike Milligan in the role yeah. and didn't like the plot, plot provisions. I've heard Rodal's a bit of a dick. Right. That's all I have to say. That's, that's <laughs> you, you know how to leave it. Uh. I know. Alright, good, good stuff. Um, number two for me... Obviously, I think in the last episode, I waxed lyrical about 12 Years a Slave, directed by Steve McQueen. This is his, uh, the film before that came out. It mm. is Shame. What, so what's the food type in this? Shame. Shame. Spell it, mate. S-H-A-M. Oh, ham. Yeah. Are you it's got serious? ham in there, eh? It's got it's, ham in it's there. It's like a ham sandwich. <laughs> it's got ham in the middle. It's got ham in the middle. Yeah. It's a ham sandwich. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna. It's let a it ham fly. sandwich of a film. Sure. All right. So, Steve McQueen, 2011 film. Michael Fassbender plays Brandon, a successful advertising executive, whatever that is, who seemingly has it all: well-paid job, great apartment. Uh, world is his oyster. Good looks. Good looks. Women seem to be falling at their feet for him. You know, it's got it all. He does keep himself distant from the outside world, however, and this allows him to indulge in his uh, sex addiction and particular is uh, pornography which he, he does enjoy a good dabble in and this makes him unable to form an emotional relationship with really anyone else and you sort of see him struggle with that when he he meets someone who he might actually like and isn't just a, a one night stand and then the yeah. the frustration that comes up when he realizes that he can't well, it doesn't come up well absolutely when he can't quite perform as he would like to perform 
Steve McQueen is obviously a very talented director. This is his second feature film. He was also a Turner Prize winning artist, really? as you may or may not have known, yes. And there have been suggestions from some of his critics in the past that he's a director that puts style over substance, when actually he's a director that marries the two of them absolutely yeah. beautifully, I think. That's what and, I'd say. And he does that... Yeah, he has a very talented team that he surrounds himself, obviously. He worked with Sean Bobbitt on 12 Years a Slave and also on Hunger, but he works with Sean Bobbitt again here, the cinematographer. And I, I did allude to it in the last podcast. He makes this this film really cold and clinical in appearance. Uh, its apartment is all very meticulous and it's all kind of kind of futuristic, no personality, like a show home, basically, mm-hmm. you know, the home of the future that you might want to see. It's and not dissimilar to the, the apartment in uh, Hard Candy, I think. No, exactly, no, I, I, that did occur to me when you mentioned that. And it, it's a world that matches the character of Brandon perfectly, who, you know, he's a character who on the surface looks perfect, but in reality he is a very damaged person who's being eaten alive by this addiction. There's a scene, when it all sort of comes to a head... He, there's this scene where he first of all goes to a club and he tries to chat up a girl and he ends up getting in a fight with a girl's boyfriend and he ends up going to a gay club and he try, gives that a try and then he ends up, I think, visiting prostitutes and it's kind of depicted as, you know, here is, it's a sex binge in the way that, mm. you know, an alcoholic might go on a drinking bender where, you know, you start off in a pub and then you move on to a club and then by the end of the night you're just going wherever you can get your hands on any kind of alcohol. Yeah. So I think that's very well realised as well. So obviously sex addiction is a 21st century kind of addiction. It's a, a new one here, but it's, uh, and this is one of the first films I feel has really brought it to light and kind of showing the very damaging side that it can have. Well, the way that Fassbender plays it is just so miserable. Mm-hmm. There's no enjoyment no. in it. It's just so clinical it just and it. horrible yeah. and, you know, impersonal. And But, yeah, a, a great film. And, um, you know, speaking of addiction, it's, it's good to see people... You know, showcasing this, and we spoke about how 12 Years a Slave was a great responsibility to take, to take on mm-hmm. that topic, and... You know, he he really did this uh, a great service. Mm-hmm. So um, plenty more of that, please. He's going to be a real big contender in uh, the future, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. Well, fantastic, Michael. Well, that was nice. Uh, I'm moving on to something which is a difficult topic for me because, as you know, I am a tangiphobic. Mm. I have a uh, intense fear of oranges, mm. and I always have done. So for me to to go through the motions like this for this film is is, is going to be tough. So help me through it if you can. I'm here it, for you. It is. Um, a clockwork orange. Mm-hmm. From uh, 1971, Stanley Kubrick's dark masterpiece of a hellish dystopian future mm-hmm. where lethal gangs terrorise the night. Mm. Isn't it though? So Malcolm McDowell stars as Alex, a young, complicated man who likes castle music, mm-hmm. rape and violence. He and, and milk. Yeah, he like, drinks a bit of milk. But not Harvey Milk. Not Harvey Milk. I don't think he's into it for that. He'd probably be up Harvey Milk for being gay. Yeah, probably. Uh, he and his heartless cohorts um, go on binges of crime, eventually going too far and ensuring Alex's uh, incarceration. Yep. And this is um, the second part of the film. The first part of the film is really setting up this lifestyle, this world where these guys live in. And um, yeah, it's quite, it's, it's quite playful, I think, the first half, I'd say. 
from a kind of sick point of view. Yeah, so, from a very sick point of view, <laughs> you could say it's quite playful. I think it is quite playful. We have a great kind of sped up montage scene with him, you know, having a threesome with, with two young girls that he meets at the music store to, you know, an electronic Beethoven piece, which is, is quite comical and that's a nice romp. Right. But um, I've never heard the nice romp used to describe this film. Really? But anyway, yeah. Well, you know, different yeah. strokes. Yeah, I suppose. So. Um, now the second part of this film, in prison, um, Alex agrees to undergo a kind of aversion therapy uh, here called the Ludovic technique, uh, where he's drugged to feel sick and shown graphic images of violence in the hope of conditioning him and his behaviour. Mm-hmm. And this is a real tough watch, Michael. Mm-hmm. You've seen it when he's yeah. got his eyes mm-hmm. pulled open and he's, he's seeing all these crazy scenes of animal cruelty and war and and violence and uh, yeah it's, it's it's not nice it's not as, as much fun as the first half of the yeah. film I think but um, what we have is this throughout we have this very strange um, unique narration through a kind of Russian influenced English called Nadsat created by um, the author of the book Clockwork Orange Anthony Burgess and it's kind of like a, a mix of like Russian Anthony Burgess Bur- Burgess yeah Burgess. Yeah. Burgess? Yeah. Well, I'm giving him a fancy name. Burgess. <laughs> Mr. Burgess. But he brings in this kind of Russian and Cockney rhyming slang uh, kind of thing, which makes it just uh, just that little bit more haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it makes it more unsettling and, and very unfamiliar. It's a very kind of um, strange world that they create with this uh, with their, their dress and the way they talk and the way they address each other and the, yeah. the very instant violence you know there's that scene where him and his drugs are walking down beside the canal and he just decides that it's time to take charge of the gang again smashes one of them in the balls kicks dim into the river and then goes to help him out and cuts his hand open and it's just very instant shocking violence mm-hmm. and you know it's gone down a cult, as a cult classic because of all these things yep on top of all this we've got this very chilling score I mentioned it. it's like classical music given a very tinny eerie electronic makeover yeah. um, which transforms you know classic pieces into something very sinister yeah. banned for years linked to murders across the world yeah video nasties yep it's, a, it's got a very dark legacy of violence censorship and oranges yeah. so there we go a trifecta of evil <laughs> well for, really, for me it is yeah, yeah. yeah jolly good yeah sounds like a hilarious romp <laughs> it is a romp um <laughs> I'd like to see a remake of Anna Faris. I bet you would. And Adam Sandler. Uh-huh. But if you've got Adam Sandler, you need to also have... Um, what's Rob Schneider. Well, that goes without saying. But I was going to say Drew Barrymore, because they've got a great on-screen chemistry. Of course they do. Yeah. They do have another film coming out. So. Have they? Yeah. They sickened me. Uh. <laughs> Drew Barrymore was so promising for so long, and Adam Sandler is just like a big, bloated, dead weight pulling her down. Into the dirty garbage smells. <laughs> There's a tangent and a half. Well, there you go. All right. Okay, number one for me in films with food in the title. It is the wind that shakes the barley. <laughs> nice. Because barley's a food in that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Directed by Ken Loach from 2006. It's a sympathetic look at Republicans in early 20th century Ireland and two brothers who are torn apart by their anti-British rebellion. Or so at least it assures me on the IMDb. Okay. Because I don't like to plagiarise. Sure. 
but that synopsis came from then. That's so you have sense. Killian Murphy playing Damien O'Donovan, and a great turn from Paddy Delaney as his brother Teddy. And it's just a, a remarkably well-told film. It's like the best kind of historical films that are telling you an important part of history, you know, they're not, they're giving you a history lesson, but it's, it's by telling it through a personal story to provide, like, the bigger picture to it, in mm. the same way, and again, we're referring back to it, that 12 Years a Slave did, you know, you're sort of seeing this important event in history through the eyes of these people, you're captivated by the big picture, but you're also sucked in by the little picture here, so, and, and this film does it remarkably well as well, it's, it's really intriguing to see Damien, he's an up-and-coming, very smart cookie, he's looking to get out of Ireland, I think moved to London uh, for a career in medicine, but he's dragged reluctantly into this war against the English, and he ends up fighting alongside his brother. And then, tragically, as you go along, after the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the brothers' differing ideologies kind of pull them apart and mm. actually find themselves now fighting on the opposite side of the war and it's and it's a real tragedy you know that's kind of a sort of greek tragedy of brother fighting brother through yeah. you know through circumstances and it's about putting their their beliefs ahead of of um their family commitments because there is still a lot of love between the brothers they just happen to disagree and they're and it's something they're willing to fight for and potentially die for it's a wonderfully acted film it's also beautifully shot you know there's these wonderful scenes where you've got this guerrilla army of lads in like their flat caps and carrying shinty sticks and their overcoats sort of trudging through the mud and the mm. and the heather of the Irish countrysides and it just shows you know Ken Loach he's a director that's always really great at tapping into this kind of social realism and here he's done it in a historical context but what it shows, I think, most for me is Killian Murphy is one of the most under-celebrated actors going today. I think he's absolutely phenomenal, and there is no better example of that than in The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Well done. Thanks. I've got a lot of time for Killian Murphy. Yeah, he's, he's cracking. Good great acting actor. Shops, yeah. Really good actor. There you go. That's not a bad top five, Michael. Yeah, so... That was our top five films with food in the title. Number five for me, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Number four, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Number three, Hard Candy. Number two, Shame. A little ham sandwich there. And then number one, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Very nice. Okay. I was going to see if I could make a recipe out of my top five, but <laughs> I don't know if it can be done. Because you can't ad-lib it, surely. I don't know. Anyway, so at number five we have Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and number four we have Lock Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Yeah. At number three we have Milk, number two Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and number one was A Clockwork Orange. Jolly good. So there we go, Michael. Yes. Another, another exhausting list, and as always, if you would like to suggest a theme for our top five, the Hi Hat Facebook. Page is the place to do it. Did you have any any really good ones that you didn't that didn't quite make the mark? We had some great suggestions on Facebook. I think uh, for me, I, I wanted to have um, porkies. <laughs> yeah. Bean. Yep. Meatballs. Mm -hmm. uh, super bad. I thought that might be cheeky though, like soup. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Super okay. Bad. Yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. Breakfast is not really a food type, though, is it? Yeah, but if you were a cannibal, you could eat someone called Tiffany. True. Yeah. And then, oh brother, we're out there. 
for broth. Yeah. Which I think would have got me in trouble with the High Hatters, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a couple of really good ones out there. Um, Melon Collier, I quite liked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually like that film as well. The Bucket of Chicken List was uh, another one suggested, instead of The Bucket List. Yeah, I've seen some of these silly ones. The Dairy Lee Triangle, I thought was was quite quite good. Beef Encounter, nice. I quite like. Nice. Um, the, my my dad was very pleased with the hobnob it, uh -huh. which I think is pretty decent. That's not bad. Uh, yeah. Fight Club sandwich. Fight Club. Yep. Yeah. East of Edam. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, some good. Yeah. Some good ones out there. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. Definitely good. Good topic. Yeah. And now it is time for the Hi Hat DVD Club on the Hi Hat Film Review. Okay, what's that coming over the hill? Is it a monster? Is it a monster? It's our DVD club. It's a monstrosity. Right. Of a film. Yep. So, every week we take on suggestions from uh, the interweb, from our hi-hatters, our loyal followers. They sometimes give us nice arty films. They sometimes give us classics, unsung mm -hmm. classics, like last week with Paris, Texas. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they give us films like The Monster Squad. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, what did you make of The Monster Squad? I mean, I... I spent the majority of this film just trying to figure out who this film was was for. I sure. mean, we we played the trailer in the last episode, and we might throw in a wee bit of it now just to give people an idea if you haven't watched it. You know who to call when you have ghosts. But who do you call when you have monsters? We're the Monster Squad. What's a squad? It's like Miami Vice, I think. They're young and inexperienced. They're a bit disorganized. Monsters are not real. We don't know that, sir. Two thousand year old dead guys do not get up and walk away by themselves. And the trailer just makes it kind of seem like a sort of kids film, a kids adventure film, and mm -hmm. maybe the style of the Goonies or something like that. Yeah. And then ten minutes in, we get a girl staked through the heart with a crossbow. We get talk of a teacher molesting. The, some students, yep. the kids joke about it, and then there is a bullying scene where the bullies, there's excessive uses of the word, and I don't like to use this term, but in the interest of just explaining, they they use the word faggot. This is all in the first ten minutes, well, and I was so shocked. Faggot is a food type as well. We could have worked that into. Yeah, I suppose so. And I was shocked to learn that this is actually a fifteen. Yeah, but but why is it a fifteen? Why not keep those bits out and just have it as a kids film? Well, who's who's I, watching this? Yeah. So when, sorry, let's just go out to start. When was it made? 1987. Yeah, okay. written by Shane Black, yes. who is, of course, known for The Last Boy Scout and the mm -hmm. Lethal Weapon films, and yeah. most recently Iron Man 3. Yeah, so he's you know, got credentials in Hollywood. But uh, this film is just an absolute muddle. Yeah. It is almost like The Goonies meets Ghostbusters, but I, I, while you spent your time scratching your head at the adult themes, I was scratching my head as to what the hell was actually happening. Yeah. I was lost. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it's a short film. It's about 82 minutes long or something. And so 
just to give some kind of plot, there's a band that there's like this group of kids who have the monster squad and they're basically monster enthusiasts. They mm. kind of read stuff and they, 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 they chat about things. And then it just so happens that Dracula arrives in their town and he brings along Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman and the creature from the Black Lagoon yeah. and the mummy. And it's all these universal monsters, the old universal monsters from mm-hmm. the, the from the olden times in cinema and that. And... Yes, and then there's some plan with an amulet. There's an amulet, as there often is. There's an amulet, there's a creepy German man. There's talk of Van Helsing, I think they found Van Helsing's diary. I was so sure that that creepy, that scary old German guy was going to be Van Helsing. Yeah, but he's not. He's He's just just a German person. So they have to fight the monsters because they're the only people that believe in monsters. For some reason, the monsters are like sometimes in their house. There's a mummy in the closet at yeah, one point. Just, just cause. And um, yeah, it's just it, I don't understand what Dracula's master plan is though. What's his deal? Well, the amulet is the only thing that can stop them. So his plan is just destroy the amulet and then take over the and world. And then take over the world. There's only like five of them though. Yeah. He's Dracula, right? Fair enough. He's really good. The Dracula actually, he seems really together. He yep. seems really on it actually. He's the man with the plan. Yeah, Frankenstein. Hopeless. Yeah. Sends and, him off to kill the kids. And then he just joins the kids and starts having some fun. For no reason, though. For, yeah. He just no turns reason. up and he just he's cool with them. He's completely forgotten that he's meant to kill his children. Yeah. And he just starts hanging out with them. Yeah. And they have a, a nice 80s montage with him jumping about. Mm-hmm. The wolf man is a normal man. And he is going absolutely berserk in the police station. Mm-hmm. He's saying, I'm a wolf, I'm a wolf. And he, he grabs a, a gun from a policeman. And of course, they kill him. Yeah. They shoot him, which I thought was pretty shocking. And then kids, his, kids his body, his body goes missing. Yeah. And no one's like, hey, you know how we like killed that guy? This is a small town USA police station. They killed a man inside the police station just so... But right. he was being driven in an ambulance and then the paramedic but was they, killed. But they never follow up like, hey, did you hear that, that, um, that ambulance crashed with that guy that thought it was a wolf man? Yeah. There's none of that that's just like, oh, yeah. well, you know, whatever, forget it. Um, okay, yeah. The, the Dracula's brides... There's a scene where he's got these three terrified women in a cupboard, in a cupboard. and yep. he's advancing on them, and you're thinking, "This is this is crazy." This is bleak. Yeah, it's really bleak. Okay, there's a bit where the Monster Squad. There's a, a character called Rudy who's a bit older yeah. than the other. I have Monster Rudy Squad. equals badass. I actually okay. like the character Rudy. So Rudy's your typical '80s um, <laughs> yeah. teen, yeah, cool teen. Okay, he's cool. He's man. got a white t-shirt. He's got a black leather jacket. Yep. He's got shades. I can imagine riding a huge skateboard. Yeah, you know, I can imagine him carrying a boombox. Yeah, I can imagine him having fingerless gloves. Yeah, um, he. Joins the Monster Squad. I don't. I'm not sure why. He doesn't seem to have any other friends, yeah, despite having this cool. He's a loner. He's a badass. You're right. He's a cool '80s loner. So he joins the Monster Squad, and then there's a scene where they're, they're tooling up to fight the monsters. Yeah. And Rudy is making silver, silver bullets. He's making silver <laughs> bullets in school. Yeah. Okay. This boy is making bullets in school. Really good bullets as oh, well. Oh, like they're right. a flawless. I don't know if anyone knows anything about bullets. If your bullet is not right. Your hand's going to get blown off in that gun. Yeah. So really, you know, he's like 16. But he's making them by melting spoons in a big pot. Yeah, but they're not even his spoons. They're like one of the other monster monster squad's mum's spoons and whole her silverware drawer is just completely ransacked. Because it's shown in a montage. Yeah, she's like, hmm, where's all my silverware? Anyway, so Rudy's doing that. Straight after that, in the montage, Rudy is seen stealing an archery set from the school. A bow and arrow. Yep. And you're just like, Rudy, you're on thin ice here, mate. You are going to get expelled and put in jail for being a psycho. Yeah, he's the maverick that the group needs. So, um, 
they go through all the rules of how to kill these various monsters. You know, you need silver bullets to kill the wolfman. You need to put a stake through Dracula's heart. There's a scene where the wolfman explodes. Yeah. Now, I didn't know this about werewolves, but apparently, once they've exploded, they can come back together into a... Yeah, a, but you human. can't blow them up with dynamite. You have to kill them with silver bullets. I've never seen this happen in a wolfman film. Yeah. <laughs> a wolfman film. I'm yeah. saying like it's a like it's a like genre. There's loads of them. Yeah. So what about the wolfman? There's a there's a transformation scene which is. Um, it's really creepy. Yeah. I actually really like that scene because he sort of he vomits up this kind of like phlegm mm. and then like he transforms. I think the 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 finished project of the wo- werewolf is crap. He, he looks hard. He looks really rubbish. He's not I thought that transformation. Yeah, it's it's a bit crap. Whereas opposed to the creature from the. The Black Lagoon, I thought, looked really, really good. I thought that was, and he, you know, he's not in it very much, but there's a scene where like he puts his like thing over somebody's face and then yeah. just kind of crushes it, and that's pretty cool. But he gets taken out like a chump. Yeah, he gets he gets shotgun blasted by Fat Kid. Yeah, there's okay. a character in this called Fat Kid. Just, well, he's just got so a you name. Know. He's called like Herman. Or he's something. quite happy for his good friends to call him Fat Kid. Yeah, well, he's he's like the Fat Kid from the Goonies who does the truffle shot. Yeah. So he's in there. He's the one that's getting called a faggot at the beginning. Is he? Excessively. Yeah. Until Rudy comes and saves him. But to be fair, he handles a shotgun in that final mm-hmm. scene like a pro and just takes out the, the swamp beast. There was a brief second after that where I thought he was going to turn the gun on. On his, his friends. No, his bully. On the bullies. Because uh, it's the bullies that are... are yeah. The bullies are in the comic book shop and they yeah. won't let him in. The swamp man's advancing he cocks the shotgun, blows away the guy, and yeah, that would that's the deleted scene where he yeah. turns around and, and kills his tormentors and gets redemption. I feel like we're not analysing this more <laughs> and you know, just the the plot is all over the place. It kinda comes down to a big scene where all there's a showdown in the town centre and all the bad guys get sucked up into a vortex. I didn't yeah, I don't really have so much analysis. When we do these like crazy ones, I just have kind of standout moments. Mm-hmm. So for me, standout moments well, going back to who this film is for, I just thought that the the parents of the the kid actors were very, very... It was a bad judgment on their half, letting their kids in this film. There's at one point, I'm sure, I may, might have got this wrong, but the the youngest actu- actress in it, a young girl who must be about six years old, she calls them all chicken shits. Okay, yeah. I think. But she gets tormented as well. What's her name again? I can't remember her name, but yeah, Dracula calls her a bitch. No. Yeah, Dracula picks her up and is like, give me my amulet, you bitch. The he's saying girl. that to a six-year-old girl. He's saying it to her face. They're having her read from the book because he realizes that she's a virgin. Yeah, yeah. That made me rather uncomfortable. Yeah, because... yeah, And then, because... Because, uh, yeah, they have to get a virgin to read from the book. Did it have to be a female? Did, well, they, they, did they specify it had to be a female They never virgin? say that. They never say it needs to be a female. So any of the boys... Yeah, because they, they find this teenage girl who reads from the book and then it re it's revealed that she's not a virgin. And yeah. that's... We all got a big laugh. But at that moment, I wrote, they're all virgins. Yeah. In block capital. So, like, Even the old German guy could have been a virgin. At one point. And he could have read it in German. So they, they find this virgin, and it's, it's one of the Monster Squad's big sisters. Right. I think. And yes. then when she... And they've already had a conversation about how, like, she shows people her, her boobs. They have, yeah, yeah, yeah. In their clubhouse. And they've been perving on her... From the clubhouse, Rudy has joined the Monster Squad gang. I think to, to watch perf, yeah. one of his new friends, his sister, get undressed. Yeah, which doesn't sit too well. Frankenstein with me. takes a picture of her changing. 
Oh, is that what the picture was? Because in yeah. the montage, they get the picture and Frankenstein's jumping up and down and loving it. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, I That's don't remember sick. that. Yeah, that must have been it. Okay, so when it turns out that this girl's not a virgin and she's kind of blown the plan to mm-hmm. read this uh, Germanic text and, mm-hmm. and stop the thing, her little brother starts lamenting her about the fact that she's <laughs> not a virgin. He's like, you're not a virgin, are you? And she's like, no, there was Mark, but he doesn't count. And they're like, what? Yeah. And it's like, she's getting ripped. There's a little bit before that where they're trying to get her to read this ancient book that's in German, and mm. they're like yelling at her, and there's monsters descending, and they're like, come on, read it. And she, <laughs> I wrote it down, she says, you've got me upset. And it's like, <laughs> she's what? a class act. It's like, come on. Now, let's talk about this creepy German man if we can, because he is your Home Alone-style... Uh, social outcast, creepy. German How did they guy. meet him? I missed that. They just know that he's creepy in German, and they're they're going to go to his house. They're standing outside his yep. house, and they're saying, "How do we even know that if he's German?" And then he's just outside the house, and he's like, "Oh, I am German." Yeah. So um, he turns out to be really nice, as yeah. these social misfits well. usually do in uh, Home Alone one and two. Mm-hmm. But um, he says, "I wrote this down as well." I ha- he says, oh, they say, how do you have so much experience with monsters? Oh, no, I don't. And he rolls up his sleeve to reveal concentration camp numbers and says... Is that what that was? And he says, I have some experience with monsters. Jesus. So how about that? He's a Nazi survivor. I didn't realise that's what that was. He's a Jewish survivor. He's oh. had some experience with monsters, which is the Nazis. And I was like, hold on, who's that reference for? Because... You know, who's, who's noticing that apart from me? He's like going through this film. Oh, uh, I thought that was like some. I thought it was just going to be like an emblem that showed that he was Van Helsing or something. No, no. Oh, no. I missed that completely. He's a survivor, man. This is heavy. But there's a scene later where they've just escaped from Dracula's house, like three of the main monster squad, and they all meet outside it, and he's there in his truck. And they're all like, oh, we need to go and destroy this. And then he pipes up with, why don't we all go back to my place for some pie? Yeah, that's creepy. Yeah, but he but he served them pie the first time they met, and they all got on famously. And then later, I mean, yeah, there's just there's all been, these little bit later on. Dracula yells at the policeman, "I will have your son as well," which yeah. is, uh, yeah, you know, out of context. Could I know? Could be bad. That's Elisa Dracula's worries at that point. Is I suppose so. accusation. That's that's in a scene where he's completely unwilling to kill anyone. There's a policeman in front of him who's mm-hmm. just standing there staring. His wife is then behind him. He could have killed both, and it would have been mm. much. It would have been beneficial to him to take them out. I enjoyed when the Wolfman got kicked in the nards. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, it's just like Wolfman comes out of nowhere. He's going berserk. The kids are just screaming, "Kick him in the nards, fat boy!" Kicks him, kicks him in the nards, nards and, and it has, works. And then says, oh, Wolfman's got nards. <laughs> and then I think they say it again later on, they're like, I kicked Wolfman in the nards. <laughs> yep, he did. He's really proud of himself. Why not? I mean, to be fair, they really stepped up those kids. Yeah. There's a scene where Rudy's being the badass maverick that he is, and he's in the town square with like his, his bow and arrow. Yeah. And the the brides of Dracula are advancing on him, and they seem to get mixed up, and they seem to think that they're, they're zombies at this point, because mm. they're just walking they're, very slowly. so slow. Like, he shoots one of them in the heart, mm. and the other two who are a bit away... They don't take the hint. They don't change their strategy in any way. Yeah. They just continue to advance very slowly to upon him. To lumber towards him. Yeah, and, and he's got, he, he's he got time. with them both he, as well. Yeah, but they're just normal girls that have been turned, so... Yeah. I mean... But they're not zombies. But this is what I wanted to say, Michael. People are dying. So many policemen get like their neck snapped. Yeah, in that, that final swamp scene. thing is like crushing people's heads yep. and all kinds of stuff. 
and then like the National Guard roll up at the end and they're like, Can anyone tell us what happened here? And it's like, Oh we can. Who are you guys? We're the Mantis Flag. Roll credits. There's dead bodies straight yeah. across the streets, you know there's like there's been a vortex that sucked them off into another dimension and yeah. these kids are cool as cucumbers they're just like man. posing with their fists in the air yeah and it's a classic 80s and then they have this this song at the end yeah I'm gonna that's gonna be the song to play us out but yeah if you couldn't yeah. imagine a more 80s shocker we're cool kind of tune like it puts things like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles song to, oh. to shame shamed publicly shamed right I mean just very quickly, I, I, I found it quite creative. Like I, I thought the sets were really nice. Mm. I loved like their treehouse and things like that. I thought the creature from the Black Lagoon looked great. I thought the guy playing Dracula did a really committed job. Yeah, he was um, good. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. it did was, you? Yeah, it was an enjoyable I eighty-two minutes. It. I mean, it was com- it's completely crazy, but I thought it was awful. All right, seriously awful. All right. Well, there we go. The high point of it for me was children using guns openly. Yeah. There was a, there's one bit where they're sitting in the clubhouse, which is just like this really cool treehouse. And at one point, like Rudy goes, "How did how does your dog get up here?" <laughs> and then the scene ends. Yeah, and that was, yeah, that was one of my favorite bits. So, would you recommend it to people? I'd recommend it to like if you just if you need to put on a stupid movie to mm-hmm. have, just have on, you could do worse. It's a good hangover film. Yeah. And it does wrap it up nicely in a good amount of time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe too nicely because I still don't know why. You know, Dracula and his goons were there. No. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but mm. yeah. That's fine. It was fun. Okay, so thank you for that, um, hi-hatter Richard Pearson. If if anyone else wants to get on, on board with this and suggest something beautiful for us to watch, then yeah. we will try to give it as good a review as we just did for The Master Squad. <laughs> Alright, so what are we doing next week? Well, this suggestion, we actually put it to a vote because we had a few suggestions on Facebook and we had a little poll going on our group page, which is different from our page page, I guess. But Yeah, um, it was suggested, I think, by Sophie Watson, who's a regular listener to the show, I'm sure, and voted for by an almighty four of our loyal hi-hatters. So... Wave. Yeah, I had never heard of it. I had no idea that this film existed until now. Directed by Rid- Ridley Scott, from 1985, starring Tom Cruise, Tim Curry, it's 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 legend. Legend. Yeah. And just to read the IMDb plot synopsis, a young man must stop the Lord of Darkness from both destroying daylight and marrying the woman he loves. Yeah. I don't know, I mean, we watched the trailer. It, the trailer looked... The trailer's bizarre. Batshit crazy. Ridley but. Scott is a mentalist. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, I'm really keen, and it looks like Tom Cruise has got a really horrible accent in it yeah. as well, which can only be a good thing. So we'll be reviewing that on our next episode of the podcast. It, the whole film is up on YouTube, so you can run a wee search for that and get mm. that watched. So you can join in the fun discussion, like uh, like you might have done for Monster Squad this year. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. We're done. We've we've been all over the place. We've had highs, lows. We've had our fill of food films, mm-hmm. and we say goodbye to an amazing acting talent. Yep, absolutely. So Nickapedia will maybe return next week. I hope so, Nick. I think people are going to be furious. Keeping it the mood somber for this this week, mm-hmm. and uh, 
Next week we're ready to get back into the walls. Yeah, we need we need Nickopedia back, I think. I've been working on new jingles for it. So Really? Yeah. So thank you all very much for listening. Um, just a couple of reminders that if you, you like what we do, please like our Facebook page by searching for the Hi-Hat Film Review. And uh, we post up loads of discussion threads and pictures and videos and fun stuff like that. So it's a good thing to get involved with. You can read our reviews and things like that at hihatfilmreview.tumblr.com you can follow myself on twitter at clancyhihat please I'm trying to break that 100, 100 barrier mark Nick you got anything else you want to plug? no housekeeping just uh, if you get a CV from me in the post give me a shout because I'm looking for a job right jolly good alright well thank you very much for listening and we will uh, we'll have another one up in a couple of weeks no I can't I can't end it like that that's, uh, that's rubbish alright thank you all very much for listening we'll see you next time don't get caught watching the paint dry. No, I'm not using that either. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, and as promised, to play us out, it is the epic closing song from the closing credits of the Monster Squad. Should we have a little boogie? Let's boogie. Let's boogie! We're the Monster Squad. The forces of evil come out the fight. The amulet they must destroy. Or stand for ever in the darkest void. Who can stop that deadly might? Or who will stand up for the right? From the mouth of babes comes dynamite. The monster squad going through tonight. First came Dracula, now the Wolfman too. The mummy and the gun are swimming in the pool. We need silver bullets, we need wooden sticks. Normal stuff won't stop them because they live on hate. Speak some magic words from a virgin's lips. Baby, that'll shake and make them slip and trip. There's no turning back, gotta fight the fight. Yeah, the monster squad's on a chance tonight. Walking dead.